0: Hi, this is Amy Gastelum, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact with a donation at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show.
1: Our system is, in too many ways, broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it.
2: This is Making Contact. I'm Anita Johnson. And
3: I'm Salima Hamarani. Today on Making Contact, we're dedicating the episode to some reflections from the
4: past year of production. I'm always trying to think about how our coverage can work in tandem with people and organizations on the ground. Like, how can we make the biggest impact? Does it mean highlighting repression or talking about issues in a way that can shift narratives? Uh, Does it mean digging into deeper structural issues? I think Making Contact does all of those things. And I just really appreciate having the space to dive deeply um, into them on the show. We're also going to introduce you to the
2: new members of the team, Lucy, Gina, and Amy, and we'll talk about what we're planning for 2023. I want to see Making Contact as a multifaceted organization that not only produces amazing stories, but is also a place where we are nurturing emerging audio journalists and actively participating in shaping a more diverse and inclusive journalism sector. Stay with
5: us. We all good to go? You talking to me?
2: Oh, I thought I thought you were gonna play something. You're right.
5: You're oh right.
2: my gosh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm very nervous, but I'm a ten out of ten.
5: So welcome to Making Contact. The whole team is here today. And we've got our producers Lucy Kang, Amy Gastelum. I'm Salima Hamrani here with Anita Johnson. And we've also got our new executive director. Gina Chung, and Jessica Partnow, who is now our interim senior producer. And this is it. This is the small but mighty Making Contact team. And I wanted to start off by just saying I'm really excited to have a full production team. And I think we've been ready to take our journalism to the next level and bring in some new talent. Um, and I think you, our audience, are really going to enjoy the calendar of shows we've put together for this year.
3: Exactly, Salima. I'm excited by the growth of the team and future possibilities of the organization. And with that said, let's get into it. We have four people to introduce to our audience. Let's start with Gina. You're our new executive director. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and tell us a bit about yourself?
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Gina Chung, and I'm thrilled to join the Making Contact team. I started my nonprofit career as a fundraiser for over 10 years, and I spent majority of that time in the documentary film space. And This is where I developed a deep appreciation and passion for storytelling. I saw firsthand how narrative power can galvanize communities to take action for social change. In the same vein, the storytelling for social justice is what led me to making contact. And for me, it feels like a really smooth transition from film to audio documentary. And I'm excited to learn more about this new medium and dream big with the team here to bring impactful stories to our audience.
3: You know, that's really great, Gina. Um... Something else, too. What excites you most about working with Making Contact or future plans of growing the org?
2: I love the creative energy of working so closely with all the producers at Making Contact. And selfishly, I am deeply excited about being a student again, a student of audio documentaries and podcasts. As a team, we talked about fine-tuning our editorial voice and style, and that kind of stuff really gets my brain fired up um coming from the media art space i'm excited for potential cross collaborations with film and how we can experiment with audio and film from an organizational perspective my priority right now is to take it slow and learn the organization but if i could fast forward 5 years i want to see making contact as a multifaceted organization that not only produces amazing stories, but is also a place where we are nurturing emerging audio journalists and actively participating in shaping a more diverse and inclusive journalism sector.
3: Well, let me say again for the the team, uh, we're really happy that you're here. Uh, Gina is the most recent member of the team, followed by Lucy out there in Berkeley.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm so excited
5: to be here. Lucy, we're also really excited to have you. And, um, just a little bit of background. You were a longtime producer at KPFA, is that right?
4: Right. Actually, being a volunteer reporter for KPFA was my very first gig after I learned radio production. Um, so it sort of just set me on this whole professional journey. Um, and at KPFA, I developed this program to support the production of long, long-form radio features. And now I'm so excited to be a part of the Making Contact team. Um, I joined last October, which um, which feels both long and short. <laughs> and I feel like I've sort of hit the ground running. Um, and just, I just wanna say that like everyone on the team has been so supportive. And I just feel like we're constantly marinating in these creative radio juices.
5: Um, well, thank you so much for saying that Lucy, because we do try to be really supportive of our new staff and of our freelancers and the important work that they're doing. And actually you freelance for us a few years ago And you produced this amazing piece about serial evictions of um, houseless folks around the Bay Area that actually won an award.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, So you and I worked together and made the story on the brink, homelessness before and during COVID-19. And this was developed from a story that I originally reported at KPFA. Uh, Here's a clip from that show where a former Oakland encampment resident named Kimberly describes a very traumatic eviction.
5: Um, it was really muddy. It was slippery. There was garbage everywhere, People stuff in the way. Uh, there was so many police officers and po- mostly police officers and public works people. It was ridiculous. I mean, I had to go around them. So everything was broken in the street and everything. Nobody's uh, helping us with traffic. Me and three of my neighbors at least were flattened already. There was nothing left. <laughs>
4: When we think of displacement, we typically think of people being pushed out of apartments or houses, or people forced to move far from cities they used to live in. But there's another type of displacement that's happening in cities across the country. It happens over and over again, nearly every week. On the street, intense cities or encampments, underpasses or public parks. People who have already lost their homes are forced to undergo the trauma of eviction, not once, not twice, but multiple times. People like Kimberly and Tracy. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased um, to say that you and I, Salimo, ended up winning an Excellence in Journalism Award from the Northern California chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, um, and that was actually my first time working as a freelancer. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and I remember you giving me so just so much helpful guidance. And now it's so cool that I get to be on the other side of that now, working with our making contact freelancers.
5: And Amy, you also joined us recently, too, in July, I think it was?
0: Yeah, it was July. That's right. Um Yeah, I've done radio work as a freelancer since 2012, but my day job has been in nursing as a registered nurse. So I've had feet in both worlds for a long time, but I'm really happy to sort of cut the cord with nursing to join the Making Contact team as my main gig. Um, I mean, because of my background in healthcare, you can obviously count on me for stories about health, especially about pregnant and parenting people, queer issues, especially queer kids. Um, I'm also here representing the Midwest, so I will be making stories from this region of the country. Well, Amy, you've already
3: produced some Midwestern shows for us. Your first piece was about a garden in Bloomington, Indiana that was created for folks living in the diaspora.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Caitlin Alcantara is a young Mexican-American professor of anthropology at Indiana University University. And she started this garden as a place for folks to use soil and growth and shared food experiences as a way to kind of connect to the cultural practices of their countries of origin. And so here's a little clip from Caitlin Alcantara. Having some of the plants specifically from Latin America um, growing, that's kind of been my my focus in that outreach. And then as we've attracted other people, we've also started planting things from other cultures that I'm not familiar with. But, you know, we're kind of open to if you would like to see something in the garden, um, something that would kind of strike a chord of home for somebody if they came and saw it, then we can add that. We can integrate that into how we're growing things. Um, That story was such a neat way to start here because I was like really new to the team and worried about making mistakes. And in my research for this episode, I noticed that the website for this garden, which is called The Healing Garden, it has this statement that acknowledges that some of the feelings that have been dogging me and like sort of dog me my whole life, you know, are actually practices of white supremacy. They include urgency, perfectionism, homogeneity, hierarchical decision making, defensiveness, you know, and I had always thought of those things as like personal traits to shed, but I had not thought of them from like the loins of colonialism and white supremacy. So, as I was even making this story and working for making contact, I experienced this sort of shift. Um, you know, when I would get all perfectionist about the, the about the work, I was like, "Oh, that old that old devil, white supremacy. There it is again." You know, and I was able to be kind of more gentle with myself moving forward. So even just producing the show itself has been transformational.
4: Okay, so Amy and I are new to the production team, but I want to hear more from Salima and Anita too. Um, you both have been here for a while, right? Can you recap that story for us, Salima? How long have you been at making contact, and uh, what have you been producing that you're excited about?
5: Yeah, well, to be honest, I I don't remember how long I've been here <laughs> completely. It- Feels like I've lost all sense of time because of the pandemic, but I'm going to say six years (laughs) about. Um, I also freelanced for Making Contact before joining as a staff producer, but Making Contact was really where I started sort of creating more in-depth, sound-rich sort of structured radio pieces. Before that, I'd only really done live hosting for morning news programs and a, a few freelancer pieces here and there for other outlets. And so this year, I was actually really excited to grow my skills. Uh, mostly working with freelancers and helping them really get all of their sound to gel together, which is very hard, into a coherent story. Um, like this piece by freelancer Kathleen Shannon about the buffalo hunt in Blackfeet Nation.
2: Going right up the, butt, the belly, around the legs, pull it right around the neck. Once I get past the spine, we can start taking the legs off.
1: That's Kenneth Cook. Um, my my name is Taya Colas. I come from the Onondaga Nation on the east coast of the Six Nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Kenneth Cook has a long day ahead of him. There's a freshly harvested buffalo at his feet, and now he has to quarter it. Break it down into sections small enough to fit in his minivan.
2: So everybody's going to grab a leg We're gonna hold it spread open like this so I can
6: get to the belly.
1: We're just south of the Canadian border, and further south is Browning, Montana a town of about a 1,000 people and the headquarters of the Blackfeet Nation. A lot of meat here.
6: How much do you think this one weighs, Boyd? Yeah, it
7: weighs about um, 1,100 pounds.
1: Yeah? that last one you gave us was about that, I thought. Yeah. That's Boyd Evans, who raised the buffalo. But there's also someone here with the camera, filming the whole thing and telling me which recipes call for buffalo
8: fat. You're going to get most fat. Of, of any of your game animals that are available from bison.
1: Mariah Gladstone will post this how-to video on a platform she and Cook run called Kitchen. That's short for Indigenous Digital Kitchen, a native food education hub.
5: I really loved how this piece came together. And so, yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more about myself. But first, Anita, you've also been here for how many years?
3: Well, uh, since September of 2016. I've been producing media for a while now, though. Um, From my current work with making contact to my earlier days producing stories for national public radio and shows for community radio such as KPFA, but if folks want me to be a tad bit more personal, let's say I'm a Scorpio and I love long walks in the park. Nah, But more seriously, producing media is a love of mine. I love what we all do, producing content, sharing important narratives, void of mainstream coverage, narratives like Tiffany Drayton's, the author of Black American Refugee, Escaping Narcissism of the American Dream. In the book, she examines in-depth the intersection of her personal experience, the broader culture, and the toll of American racism and global white supremacy on Blacks living in the U.S.
9: At the time that I started kind of working out
3: my book, I also
9: simultaneously was working out this kind of really toxic relationship that I was in um, with, you know, a very narcissistic, abusive relationship. And in exposing myself to healing from, and ultimately leaving that relationship, I really recognized that abuse has cycles. And that abuse cycle um, kind of became a lens through which I looked at everything. And all of a sudden, you know, doing all of this work that I had been doing for all these year about, years about racism, I was like, wait a minute, this is exactly how I felt in the United States of America for my entire life. And so this idea of love bombing, which is that first part of the abuse cycle, It's when the abuser meets the victim and they sell all of these tales and these narratives about, you know, you're made for me. You're perfect for me. We're going to have the perfect relationship. Everything is so amazing. Um, That's that initial phase of the relationship. And when you think about the United States of America and how it sells all of the narratives around itself, like we're number one, we're the best, we're this, we're that, you know, and, and immigrants come here and they can build themselves up and you can pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Anybody can be rich. Anybody can be a millionaire. Right. All of these narratives kind of makes us really uh, committed to and invested in um, that relationship. And I really wanted people to understand that that is a tool of abusers and it has a name and it's called love bombing.
3: Yeah, I loved that interview. Thanks, Amy. Uh, Jessica, you've been with us since, what, September 2021? And you were interim executive director through the end of last year, right? Yep, that's right. You also weighed in on the episode, The Agony and the Ecstasy, Part 2, where we talked a bit about how organizations go about making big changes. Let's listen to a clip from that show, A Conversation Between You and Salima.
5: And Jessica, you've been a journalist a lot longer than me. Could you explain the crisis journalism is in right now?
7: I think in journalism for so long, we've been clinging to this idea that objectivity is truth. And this idea that as an objective journalist, I can be outside of the fray and be this sort of omniscient observer and spectator on the world. But we live in a culture of white supremacy. So also, that's really what is meant by so-called objective journalism, I think. It's, It's about maintaining the status quo, maintaining the systems of white supremacy and patriarchy and all of that. That is what has to be held constant
0: well said.
4: Yes, that's so true.
0: Definitely. here. Here.
7: Well, I am so honored to have gotten to be part of this leadership transition over the past year and supporting the team moving into this current iteration. All of these faces I'm seeing in front of me on the production team. Um, and kind of a bonus was that last year I got the chance to revisit some reporting that I had done back in 2012, um, over 10 years ago now, in Russia and Ukraine. Um, for part of that trip, I was in Moscow covering the anti-Putin protest movement. Um, and so when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, I reached out to my interpreter there, Vasily Sonkin, um, who was still in Moscow at the time. And we talked about how that moment when I had been there was sort of this rare moment of hope.
4: It was like one of the last times people had any hope that this was not forever and this was not this was yes. a question of potential agency, not just a mm-hmm. dire situation that needs to play itself out. Yeah. And I'm going to be careful with my words, uh, with what I say, just because, yeah, it's dangerous. I can't yeah. speak my mind freely. This is like, you know, me blinking it out for you. Like, I'm in this hostage situation and I can't speak all, I can't say all I want to. So
7: Vasily has since then, since we talked to him, he's gotten out of the country with his family. Um, Of course, the conflict is still going. And um, that story really makes me think about one of the things that I love about Making Contact is, which is that the show can take these really deep dives into the stories we cover. And so I'm curious to ask you all about how you see your role as journalists and storytellers. You know what I love about this work is the ability to
3: inform the larger public about certain discourse that impact their daily lives. Uh, to take on a proactive narrative and journalistic accountability in the space of in you know information sharing that produces real change and really pushes us to the better. You know whether it's a better you, a better us, uh, a better world. Which is one of the reasons I truly appreciate the work that we do in Making Contact and the commitment to the work because it isn't an easy task at all.
4: Yeah, um that's a great question, Jessica. For myself, I I think it's such a privilege to be trusted with people's stories. You know, and I see I see making contact as very much being aligned with the practice of movement journalism. So, I'm always trying to think about how our coverage can work in tandem with people and organizations on the ground like How can we make the biggest impact? Does it mean highlighting repression or talking about issues in a way that can shift narratives? Uh, Does it mean digging into deeper structural issues? I think making contact does all of those things. And I just really appreciate having the space to dive deeply um, into them on the show.
5: We want to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani. If you like the show, visit our website, radioproject.org and leave us a comment or hit us up on Twitter. We are making underscore contact. And now back to the
7: show.
2: This is Gina. As I mentioned before, I'm a student of Making Contact right now, and I'm learning the ins and outs of the organization. So I really want to hear what what we have slated for this year. What are we going to hear about?
3: Anita here, and I'll go first. Something I'm looking forward to producing uh, would be a show that really looks at the origins of particular sayings that we've used throughout history, like Indian giver or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, With this particular show, I I really want to explore the origins of such sayings or thoughts and what's tied to capitalism, uh, racism, and the history of white supremacy in this country. Uh, That's what I've got so far. What about you, Salima?
5: So I have a few shows that have been sort of percolating in my mind for years, and I'm finally going to get a chance to finish them, which is basically, so one of them is basically about black sites and torture and how two American psychologists were paid to create a torture program that eventually ended up killing a detainee. Really quickly, here's an interview I did with author and activist Rebecca Gordon about black sites. You know, like you, I've become a little obsessed with this topic, I think because I want to, as a human being, try and understand what's happening morally. And I've been thinking a lot about professionalism, the way professionalism allows us to justify immoral behavior because we're, quote, doing our jobs.
6: That makes a lot of sense, and it really makes sense in the way that torturers are trained. And if you look at how people are trained in Greece under the junta, how people were trained in Chile, in Brazil, in Argentina, in any place where there's been a torture regime, and I would argue also in the United States, there is a real similarity in that training. And the idea is that first you are yourself as a new recruit exposed to brutalization You are beaten by your upperclassmen. You are humiliated. You are tortured, in effect. And once you've survived that ordeal, you emerge on the other side of it as a person who thinks of himself, and it's mostly men, as a superior human being who has survived this and is now in a position to turn around and do the same thing to other people.
5: Eventually, um, the rank and file members of the American Psychological Association fought back and the families and the survivors of the torture programs took the American psychologists to court. So for me, it's really a story about how much power we can have, even in the most frightening situations. And I think we have to remind each other of that right now, because if we can take torturers to court, we can we can do a lot of things.
4: Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. And I think it's so important that Making Contact showcases stories like these. Um, and just in thinking about the theme of resistance, you know, one story that I'm working on looks at indigenous led resistance against resource extraction around the world, especially against multinational corporations. I got the chance to talk to Ivy Camille Many So, a Diné activist and filmmaker Um, Her newest film is called Powerlands, which chronicles just different sites of Indigenous resistance. Here's a clip from that documentary.
8: I began working on this film to document our community's struggle against resource colonization. Along the way, I found that we are not alone. This is a story of indigenous people protecting and rebuilding. Multinational corporations like Glencore, Peabody and BHP have been extracting hundreds of billions of dollars in profit. It is happening in nearly every country on Earth. First came colonization. Now corporations are stealing the resources from under our feet. This extraction is global, but so is our resistance. From Donata, I connected with indigenous people in Colombia, the Philippines, and Mexico who are uniting to protect the earth. We are appealing to public opinion, changing laws, and putting our bodies On the line. This film is part of that resistance.
2: That sounds so interesting, Lucy. I'm looking to the production calendar right now and I'm seeing self managed abortion next to Amy's
0: name. What's that all about? So, yeah, we're in the belly of the beast when it comes to the future of elective abortion access. Right. Like there's just so much happening right now around this issue. And it's all really convoluted because the legislation is happening at the state and local level. Right. So it's very piecemeal. And the thing to keep in mind is that abortion access has been piecemeal for a very long time. The people who've had the least access, I would say, are arguably Black and brown folks in the rural South. Um, You know, a lot of advocates right now are talking about the future of abortion access needing to be better than what Roe provided, including the expansion of self-managed abortion, which is abortion done at home, usually using medications, mifepristone and misoprostol. And when we have these conversations about self-management, and the hope there for increased access. Um, another thing to consider is that we, we also have to talk about the potential for an increase in the criminalization of abortion, including the criminalization of uh, pregnant people themselves, not just providers anymore. Um, so I think this conversation is like both full of hope regarding the expansion of autonomy and privacy and financial access that self-management could bring to our lives, and also it's a little scary because of the potential for an increase in criminalizing pregnant people for using them. Um, so that's that's already happening, like both, you know, the increase in self management and the criminalization of abortion. And unsurprisingly, it's affecting Black and Brown people more than White people. So um, I'm talking with several parties right now um, involved in what's happening this to try to get a grip uh, on understanding the ins and outs of uh, this issue.
5: I'm really looking forward to that piece. And, I, you know, the speed with which you said the names of those abortion pills reminds me that you were a nurse as well as a journalist. I think that's a really great glimpse of the production calendar so far. Um, There's more. There's a lot more stuff planned this year. But this is a pretty good sampling. You know, yes,
3: I would agree. Um, It's definitely a vibe uh, to be able to plan the coming year with you all. And I'm definitely excited.
0: We did it. How's everybody feeling? Okay, go making contact.
7: Oh, wow.
5: <laughs> so that does it for today's show. I'm Salim Hamarani. Again, I was here with Anita Johnson, Jessica Partnow, Gina Chung, Lucy Kang, Amy Gastelum. That's the entire team. If you'd like to find out more information about our team or today's show, visit us online, radioproject.org. You can also find us on social media. Our Twitter is making underscore contact, and on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. Thank you for listening to Making Contact.